to the London Magazine podcast. So regular listeners of the podcast might not recognise my voice, so I thought I'd just give myself an introduction. I'm Katie Tobin, the new marketing and editorial assistant. So for all you new listeners, if you didn't already know, we're the UK's oldest literary and arts magazine, founded in 1732. We've published the likes of T.S. Eliot, Jean Rhys, Annie Ernaux, Evelyn Waugh, and even Wordsworth, Shelley, Keats, and many more. So today I'm joined by the magazine's managing editor, Jamie Cameron. Jamie, how are you today? You coping well with El Nino? I'm very well. Yeah, thank you. That was a lovely introduction. It's actually air-conditioned in the studio we're in right now, so it's kind of the best place to be um, in, of, of all the kind of places I frequent. But the studio, I'm at a, a very nice temperature, yeah. Brilliant. So, on to the most important part of the show. Our guest today, we are delighted to be joined by Jachi Kang. Uh, Jachi, who is originally from Geneva, is a doctoral student in art history at Oxford University and the founding editor-in-chief of Sign Theta, an international print-based creative arts magazine for the Sino-Diaspora. Their current research explores the relationship between Chinese art and visual culture and discourses of hygiene, disease and pollution in the post-socialist era. They are also the winner of the White Review Short Story Prize last year and they're currently writing their first novel. So we're so happy to have you here. Um, First off, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. Brilliant, brilliant. So I wanted to start off with a general discussion about uh, identity and sign theatre. So how did magazine come about uh, from one literary publication to another? We know it's no easy feat to keep it going. So it's amazing to have achieved so much with the publication. It's such a short span of time already. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I mean, wow, 1700s. I can only hope that we will still be around if the world is still around yeah. uh, 400 <laughs> years from now. I guess I would say that Sign Theta came back because of Tumblr in 2016. I think like I, I was a teenager, I was in high school and I had just gone through a few years of like what you might call diaspora angst. Uh, just like being like, wow, all of a sudden I've discovered that like I am a racialized person I'm a person who has like an you know a a migratory background what does that mean for me so I was thinking about it a lot and I kind of just made this tumblr post being like oh I would love to like start a magazine one day that like explores what it means to be like a member of the Chinese diaspora because I had recently sort of come into the uh, knowledge that such a thing existed and I was like oh I, w- I want to do this and so my friends replied to the post and they were like oh yeah that sounds fun let's do it and I think like they didn't realize I was actually going to do it but they were just like oh yeah it's great and then like three days later I messaged them and I was like actually let's just do this and then we ended up recruiting a fourth person who was also a mutual from Tumblr that I had never met before Liz who became one of the co-founders and is our current managing editor so out of the four initial co-founders me and Liz are the ones that are still here seven years later. Woo. Is Tumblr still going for the sort of literary zine? I stopped using it around 2018. Yeah I have no idea. I mean, I also stopped using it around that time. So I think it's back now for like, there's like a Reddit and Twitter diaspora into Tumblr, apparently. <laughs> it's amazing how these kind of platforms just like share users and people migrate from one to the other one. What like, wasn't Tumblr bought by someone else? Or I mean, obviously there's kind of, is that what happened? I can't remember. Yeah, well, um, Yahoo bought Tumblr for a billion dollars. And then, was? wait, was it a billion? Maybe it was only a million. In any case, they lost like all of their money. <laughs> like it just didn't work out. Yeah, Tumblr is a kind of economic investment would be an interesting shout, but yeah. Uh, yeah. It resigned to the era of indie sleaze in 2014. No, I was just going to talk about indie sleaze and how it's been like 10 years of that and how crazy that is. Yeah, I mean, even the Andy, the kind of indie landfill era before that, of like this, that music is, it's like also almost closer to what like the 70s would have been yeah. to like when I was right. born to now. It's just, which is like a, a terrifying, terrifying thought. God, Tumblr, how's that going to go down in the, in the, the annals of history? I wonder. Anyway. <laughs> 
Um, so could you talk a little bit as well about the emergence of Sino as a diaspora? I'm curious mm-hmm. about what it means to you and if you actually find it difficult to define. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that question. I mean, actually, incredibly difficult. It's impossible to define. And that is kind of the point of it. So firstly, like we chose the word Sino because the word Chinese obviously has like connotations of like belonging to a certain nation state. Sino is like slightly more removed from that. It still means Chinese, but it's like, you know, much less, I guess, politically attached to any like existing nation. But ultimately, it is still you know, a label like any other label. And like that comes with difficulties and that comes with exclusions. And ultimately to us, Sino is about the porousness of the boundaries of that identity, if that makes sense, like rather than like policing identity. It's really just about like anyone that feels that they have like a strong affinity to this like idea of Sinoness or Sino diaspora. I think a lot about this really good article from the 90s by the scholar called Alan Trun, which is called Fuck Chinese-ness. And he basically just like really goes in on like any kind of identity label is ultimately one that if you really want to uphold it, if you really want to insist on it, then you're going down the wrong path because that means that you're going to start you know excluding people labels are more a way for your for you to place yourself in solidarity with other people who also strategically you know share that label and like figure out like what the, the difficulties are what the conflicts and frictions what the frictions are <laughs> um because that's where the interesting stuff comes out like that's what's important and that's where we're going to create interesting art so I hope that makes sense. How does that relate then to you know this idea of the Chinese state to places like Hong Kong or Taiwan? Like, how is that mm-hmm. affecting the work you think that's coming out of those places? Because I mean, friction is certainly one way of describing the circumstances. Yeah, for sure. There. I mean, for us, you know, for us, we are uh, our position is that of diaspora ultimately. So diaspora necessarily means like dispersal um, and a sort of loose collective that is ultimately like really impossible to pin down. We will very very loosely describe like the Sino diaspora as anyone who is of Sino heritage, but is not like located within the Sinosphere. So the Sinosphere is kind of this term that like academics and like, you know, people in the media might use to describe but like a loose collection of geographies, including the PRC, including Taiwan, Hong Kong, Macau, and sometimes even Singapore, where they speak, where Mandarin is one of the official languages. So to us, like, you know, that borderline and that like margin is where negotiation happens and where it's interesting we tend to publish like for example taiwanese people who like taiwanese americans or like taiwanese british people or people who have left hong kong for like various reasons and are sort of looking to uh talk to other people who are also within this kind of yeah diasporic like in between positionality because i guess like ultimately um the powerful politics of diaspora is that we evade binaries and we evade categorization and like that can become a starting point for thinking about like a world without borders for example how does the kind of europeanness particularly of your background play into that because Mm -hmm. one of the things i found really interesting and we can talk a bit about your own writing later on Mm -hmm. i was reading your story the trip um which i think was published first in was it joyland magazine um yeah and one of the things i found so fascinating about that is this idea of the international school which is something Mm -hmm. you know growing up in like in the midlands in england i was like i've never i've never even heard of an international school um, mm-hmm. But then when you move to London or even Oxford or wherever, inevitably you end up meeting a lot of people who have this kind of mystical international school accent. And I'm fascinated by how that relates to community, because I guess you kind of the Asian American identity is is almost I imagine it's its own thing compared to the international school identity and how the, the Sino diaspora plays into that. Like how has the international school sphere um, kind of affected your conception of these identities and, and your own work as well? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. Um, 
I think this is something that like I think about a lot because it is firstly I have that international school accent right <laughs> um and it is like it is a really weird place to be I think like I so I was born in China and I moved to um Switzerland when I was a baby and I grew up there my brother was born there but I did like start attending international school quite young because uh, my parents work within the UN system and like the UN actually pays for you to go to like international school which is kind of nice uh, they also paid for like a lot of my undergrad but anyway shout out to the UN but I just don't know if it's like the best use of like the UN's resources but you know I got to benefit <laughs> it is definitely like a really strange because like I you know it is such like an extreme point of privilege to inhabit that international school system like whether or not you are actually one of those like third culture kids or like diplomat kids that like move from country to country which is what the international school was kind of invented to serve it puts you in this like really weird position and like my school was always really really excited about like how multicultural we were and how many countries we represented but it was very strange because that kind of celebration of like cosmopolitanism both in my school and like in Geneva as a place in general did absolutely nothing to reconcile like the continuing colonial violence that like happens every day around us right and like this kind of like incongruity was like really really strange to grow up around I think especially like for me there was always this idea that like oh like I'm Chinese and like I like represent China at my school even though I had never lived there um and it was like a very strange like mixture of like tokenization and like pandering it was very superficial and like ultimately like I think it just created like a, like a really strange atmosphere like racism didn't go away and like you know neo-imperialism didn't go away and like in the city i think like geneva continues to struggle with this sort of like tension between hyper mobile like english speaking sort of digital nomads and like ngo people and like this ongoing you know uh refugee and migration crisis across europe that switzerland is uh, really implicated in so i guess like going back to like your original question like how does the sino diaspora fit into that like i completely understand that like my experience of sino diaspora is like so different and like completely almost like not comparable to the experience of for example indentured laborers mining for guano in peru in the 19th century but i think that increasingly like this idea of I guess I guess it's like solidarity to me isn't about like being exactly the same. It's about again like about difference and about like figuring out like what might align us and like why it might be important to like reach into the past and also reach across space, current space and just form connections in general and like figure out what those connections are going to do right I think like yeah. in the past seven years like because I was in high school when I started this like my intention like our intentions at the start were definitely just like oh my god like it's so crazy how there's like people like me in the world let's do something about that and like increasingly I found myself coming like discovering such like unexpected things and like coming to such unexpected conclusions um about like the kind of I guess more radical world that we want to imagine for the future um so ultimately, yeah. But then I think like going back to my writing, it is definitely really weird to try and like write about my upbringing and my childhood because I always have to explain like, oh, being from Switzerland. So like I speak French, but then also I'm Chinese, but then also like English became my first language when I started to like self-actualize. And like, what does all that mean? Like I'm trying to write a story about something else, but then I still have to come and explain it. And that becomes part of the theme. So with the trip, like I wanted to write about compulsory heterosexuality and I wanted to write about like lesbianism, but then it became also like deeply about language. Two things just on the back of that. One, you're, you're kind of talking about this impossibility of 
how you define it and how you relate all these kind of disparate parts of the diaspora together. One kind of what is the thing then you think that where is the kind of that common difference at the root of it that you find appears kind of most most often or most strongly? And then also in terms of your own writing, what, how did you settle on English as as the language mm-hmm. that you choose to mm-hmm. choose to write in? Right. Of course. Thanks. I think what we come back to a lot is, um, again, is the a common uh, condition of impossibility, right? Because like anyone that has had like any kind of cross-cultural or even like socially mobile like experience find that like they're like just fundamentally like connecting to another person, especially like your own family members and the people in your community and the people that are closest to you is like always going to be imperfect, right? And I think that's something that for like the migrant experience or for like any kind of like diasporic experience, something that everyone has in common is like that difficulty of uh, talking to our family and talking to the people around us and being like, oh, actually it is impossible. So like what happens once we accept that or not even just accept that, like what happens once we like take that and do something with it? So I hope that makes sense because like ultimately like everyone is so different and like experiences are so different, especially like the Chinese diaspora has had such a long history. Personally, I have this like whole like side kind of idea that to me, like the history of the Chinese diaspora is also a history of capitalism uh, because it started out with, you know, the demand for cheap labor and um, continues like that continues to shape like the way that quote unquote, like Sino people like move through the world. yeah, so it's it's really I think everything else is like free game. Everyone will have like their own ideas about what it means. But like ultimately to me like I want diaspora to be a starting point for like radical revolutionary politics. Sounds fantastic. Sort of relatedly, I, I want to talk to you about your experience with the Sunday community in in Oxford because you touched on mm-hmm. how Tumblr was a sort of driving force for connecting you with with loads of different people. Jamie went to Oxford. I uh, I went to Durham. There was this real sort of division between, I think, both town and gown in terms of uni and, and locals, but also then kind of seeing international students even mm-hmm. further removed from that. And mm-hmm. I know I know you've been there since 2017, and I just want you to kind of expand on how much it might have changed over that period of time. Yeah, thank you. So I think, like, it's definitely weird. Like, Oxford is, is a very strange place, and I would say that in the past few years, Oxford has gotten more maybe more desolate like a lot of if you if you come in especially through the train station into town you walk past like all of these shop fronts that are just completely shut um and it's very strange like um a really nice like cafe slash art gallery slash um music venue called jam factory um recently oh my god it was like a year ago now it feels like recent to me um shut down and they shut down because like well because all the landlords here are colleges uh and because the landlord like wanted to raise the rent and they couldn't afford the rent Um, And then just like within like a month of that, they were gone. And I think it's like really sad to see how, you know, these landlords would rather have get no rent than like get a bit less rent and have this like really vibrant community venue Mm. that brings people together. Um, So that's been that's been really kind of sad to see. Like a lot of my favorite cafes that I really liked as an undergrad are gone now. And it's funny to see how like, you know, my friends who are master's students, especially who are only here for a year, they're also very transient. And they get this like one specific slice of Oxford life, um, which is like really meaningful and really important. But then there's so much, you know, it's it's very hard to like meet, meet people who are new to Oxford and be like, wow, there's so much that we used to have and it's gone. But then at the same time, obviously, like more is going to come. Although with like rent going up so much every year, like, I don't know, you know, how much more can be reborn, I guess, from the ashes. Um, 
in terms of like I guess like the Sino community like it is like a very strange like I never really fit in with like Chinese international students when I was here because I'm I'm not really one like I'm not that fluent in Mandarin and at the same time um so, so I didn't really fit in with them but then at the same time I think with like the local uh, white UK population a lot of them didn't really know what to do with me either because I'm like because because I'm fluent English I don't know it was very weird because I was like surely like you guys have like people of color like you know um but yeah I think like it occurred to me that a lot of the people that I met in undergrad had truly like never spoken to someone who wasn't white or wasn't from the UK ever um which is like quite fair like you know everyone in who comes to Oxford comes from like such a different background but yeah it was definitely hard I think the cool thing was that I very quickly found like my own group of friends and like my people who are I think I think like I end up like hanging out with a lot of like other like British people of color because our experiences aligned the most so that was really fun yeah in terms of the local Chinese community like it's definitely something that I've been discovering more as a grad student and post-COVID I worked at a Chinese bakery for a little over a year like that was really fun because you really got to see like a lot of people coming from wider Oxfordshire into town just to like eat like these Chinese foods and stuff. In some ways it was like really nice because it really brought people together. But in other ways I was being exploited. So, you know, that's why I quit. Do you think since writing your relationship has changed with, with Oxford? Obviously you've, you've always written as well, but kind of mm-hmm. characterising it, at least the, the way you do in, in Gunk and, and stories mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think like I I only started writing fiction actually like in 2020, like when the pandemic hit. Before that, I was much more of like an editor. I was editing Sign Theta and like I was also editing ISIS, which is like the Oxford student magazine. And so before that, I was just like working with writers to like, you know, prepare their work for publication, doing like these kinds of rounds of like close reading and close editing, but then also like magazine curation as a whole. Going back to Jamie's question that I forgot to answer, like why English? It's just because like English is the language in which I live my life. English is the language in which I've I've read the most. I think that's like the most important thing because, you know, you only really write if you read. I don't read nearly as much in French or Chinese as I do English. So it really was natural. Also, because I think like the internet, um, which was such an important part of like my own self-actualization and my of my growing up, I was on the English internet as well. So that's that's why English has become this like almost invasive like force in my mind. Like it's like the only language in which I can really express myself creatively. When it came to writing, I think like I really wanted to write and I really wanted to be producing words and playing with words. And it took me like a while, especially during the pandemic, to like figure out what that looked like for me. I, I experimented a lot with poetry, partly because I never know what's going on with poetry. So I was like, this is great. Like I don't know what's happening. I'm just messing around. And then with fiction, at first I was writing like a lot of like work that had like a lot of speculative elements. I was trying to figure out like like how truth and like imagination can like come together. I think I had a block for a few months where I was like, I can't make anything up. But now that I've like really broken into fiction, I feel the opposite. I feel like I can't write without making anything up. It's very constraining otherwise, which like I would be interested to hear from you guys about because Katie, I know that you write a lot of nonfiction. You do a lot of journalism, but you also shared with me that you started writing fiction. So I'd be really interested in hearing from you about like how that's been. Anyway, in terms of Oxford, like I think writing gunk, like I don't like it as much now at all. But at the time, like it was so cathartic for me to write because it was about how much I hated being at Oxford and how hard it was and how alienating and like violent it is and how like I think you're sort of expected to have so much fun and like most people who write campus novels in general well I guess like the campus novel genre tends to be much more depressing but then the sort of Oxford genre can sometimes be like weirdly in this like weird space of like both really optimistic 
and like really celebratory but then also like I, I lost my train of thought. We, we were actually talking about campus fiction over lunch, which is quite funny. Mm-hmm. We were. I, think I was talking about Jeffrey Eugenides' The Marriage Plot, um, mm. which I feel like is very kind of fleeting. I've, I've read a lot of stuff recently, which is sort of the post sort of uni liminality of life mm-hmm. and kind of going mm-hmm. without that guidance. I've been a student for seven consecutive years. So God help me when I finally technically leave the student bubble. What was your question about journalism? I'm, I'm curious. Because oh, we, we've yeah, just, just had journalists on the last mm-hmm. podcast. Yeah, well, I'd be interested because you recently shared with me that you started writing short fiction. So I guess like, you know, how is that working out for you? Like, how are you finding that like line between like, quote unquote, the truth and like fiction, right? Because ultimately, like, that's not really a real line. But then obviously within journalism, there are things that are actually true. So yeah, just... I quite like the reserve with with journalism. I tend to write about things that I... So I wrote a lot of stuff for Huck Magazine about higher education just because mm-hmm. it was things that I was kind of exposed to every day. And I like the veneer of being able to not only kind of characterise some of the things that interest mm-hmm. me about higher education, but also I think speak to people who've kind of had similar experiences. Fiction, mm-hmm. even though it can be sort of veiled through the lens of fiction, I think it's um, it's a lot more exposing. I wrote loads mm-hmm. of short stories as an undergrad and during my mm-hmm. master's as well, but it's something that I want to get back into, even though it feels like a mm-hmm. lot more frightening in in a particular way and it feels so much more personal but I'm excited to see where it goes. I think there's just to to hop in on the kind of element of fiction how that relates to poetry which is more my background is and Mm -hmm. what you were saying Jachi about truth and how there is in in journalism a obligation towards a kind of literal or documentary truth and Mm -hmm. how in fiction even if you're writing auto fiction that doesn't really exist because the truth that you're obliged to kind of give over is a kind of an artistic or poetic truth you're representing And how, you know, often lying or, you know, taking something and then kind of distorting it is actually a more truthful mm-hmm. representation of a situation. Yeah, so exactly. I was just wondering yeah. how that, you know, how does that apply when you're writing? Because I know that kind of creative mm-hmm. nonfiction, autofiction is maybe something that you've mm-hmm. played around with. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's very easy to say that the, your obligation is towards a poetic truth. But then when you're writing about <laughs> real people, suddenly, yeah. you know, that, that that line becomes a lot more, a lot more fraught, a lot more kind of full of friction to use that kind of physics metaphor from earlier, you know? Yeah, for sure. Like, I think this is like a really, really interesting question. And I was thinking recently about a book of short stories that I had read, which is The Land of Big Numbers by Teping Chen. Um, and according to her bio, she worked like for many, many years as a journalist, like in Asia um, and in China specifically. She's Chinese American. And I was reading like these like fictional short stories that she had written and I was really struck by them. But there was also something about them that I couldn't really put my finger on. I was chatting with someone else who's also a journalist and also writes fiction about it. And he said something really interesting, which was that if you are working in like this documentarian or like journalistic mode for a long time, then what might end up interesting you much more is the stories and not the people. So then when you go into fiction and you're writing stories, you're writing for the stories and not for the people, even though the characters are fake, um, then you end up maybe having slightly less consideration for like the real people that you are writing about in in the story like even if like all of your characters are completely fictional like there is always someone out there that that character maps onto that 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 character like kind of resonates with right like these people these kinds of people do exist in real life and I was thinking a bit more about like the ethics of that because I've always been I actually started doing a bit of creative nonfiction or like autofiction recently and I was thinking a lot about like the ethics of like writing about real people but I actually don't think that that goes away in fiction at all because I think like even when your characters are completely made up like technically 
there is someone out there who is like that or mm-hmm. there is someone out there who has experienced something like that and that's like you know potentially even more terrifying because you've never even met that person it's not yeah. just like your friend or like your ex or whatever yeah so that's something that i've been thinking about a lot um and like going back to the trip which is a piece that i'm like really proud of and i will also shout out like garth greenwell because i wrote this for uh the first workshop i ever did which was the LGBTQ fiction masterclass uh, with Garth Greenwell online. I wanted to write about that experience of like being a lesbian but not knowing that you're a lesbian and I was like drawing on like all of these like fictional elements like the idiot by Elif Batuman for example but then obviously also drawing on my own experience like even though the character the narrator in that story is clearly based on me and the crush that the narrator has is actually based on like a real person that I had a crush on in school ultimately like every single scene in that story is made up like none of those things actually happened and yet again like you say Jamie like there's actually more true than anything that might have happened in real life so yeah I'm really I'm really enjoying that but technically I think ultimately I enjoy making stuff up that's true a lot more than trying to write like creative nonfiction and trying to write stuff down that like has to all be real and I've really been struggling with that actually like I over Christmas I was I gave myself a challenge of writing some like actual memoir and I just like couldn't really put it together so I still think lying is more fun agreed (laughs) so what we're going to do now is we're going to ask you Mm -hmm. to do a reading from class of 1985 very excited class of 1985 at this point there's no gray cloud on the horizon no hint of what is to come Everything is still, as it always is, at noon. I come here to do my favorite thing and what I am best at, which is to watch. I watch the heavy sun, I watch the green water that is just a little too dirty, too soup-like to imagine dipping into. I watch the gardeners scattered across this part of the bank in ones and twos, planting flower beds in silence so that the West Lake might someday look more like what it might have been in imperial times when Hangzhou flourished. The workers' bodies move in a set rhythm, not unlike the soft waves of the lake. They curve their backs, like in Gourbez, the stonebreakers. I can smell their body odor from here, that specific scent that sweat has when it's produced from wage labor, sour, slightly addictive. I find myself wondering if these gardeners are local, and if so, whether they find they prefer the West Lake from their childhoods to the one they're seeing and making today. Most of my classmates at the, at the academy grew up in this city and have all kinds of opinions about the past, some of which need to be expressed more carefully because it is not tasteful to be happy about the late 60s and early 70s, a time we now call those 10 years of extreme ideological thought trends when errors were made. I only know the edges of what some of my peers, several of whom were childhood friends, were up to in those years, what streets they roamed, what mountains they went up to and countrysides they went down to, and what they found in those villages, and what they recovered when they returned to Hangzhou. What the West Lake looked like for them. Because I am not from this city, I only know the West Lake the way it is now, vast and beloved, and constantly asking for someone to make it better. Standing at any point on the bank, I can never fit all of it into my eyeline, just as a traditional hand scroll painting is too long to be viewed in one go. Instead, one has to choose which section to unroll. The rest of the scroll must remain hidden, for that one view to be revealed. Some months ago, before the renovations were properly begun, I was interrupted on my lunchtime visit by two comrades wearing armbands and holding clipboards, who asked me to participate in a survey listing the most notable sceneries on West Lake. After the government finishes construction in this area, they told me, it'll become an attraction for tourists from across the nation and even abroad. As a non-local, what did I enjoy most about the lake? 
I was flooded with shame at the idea that even after more than three years in Hangzhou, I reeked of out-of-townness. And so, even if I knew the names of anything, I would have been too anxious to conjure them. The lake is very pleasant, I said. Yes, the survey takers said, gripping their pencils, but which part is your favorite? In the end, I found a name in the dregs of my memory and told them I liked the Broken Bridge, the meeting place of the lovers from that famous myth about the white snake seductress. That one, the survey takers asked, pointing across the water to a long bridge built from pale stones that curved upwards ever so slightly in the middle, like a mosquito bite on a forearm. The bridge had a circular gap in the middle that resembled a window. There was nothing broken about it. Yes, I replied, mystified, because I actually had not known that the broken bridge from myth was a real place that still existed today. It had, in fact, been on that bridge that, last year, late one night, with no one else around, I'd kissed my girlfriend for the first time. After school that evening, when I met with her and told her about the survey and, I, and my discovery, she snorted. I thought you did it on purpose, she said. It made sense to me. I figured you had this whole romantic scene in your mind. Like what? I said. You thought you were the innocent mortal boy and I was the white snake spirit out to trick you, but whom you loved anyway because of your good heart. That's why you waited so long to make a move. You chose the broken bridge because you love symbols. Did I love symbols? I wondered. If she said so, then it must be true. She continued, but in reality, I think that you're the white snake and I'm the green snake. But the snakes are sisters, I said. My girlfriend laughed. Hot, right? No, I said. I thought for a moment. Why are you the green snake? She put her fingers in my hair, made a fist, and pulled and pulled until I relented and let her hear me groan. She knocked her forehead against mine, rested there. Because it doesn't matter what shape you take, my girlfriend said, or where you go, I'll always follow. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was brilliant. So we're going to do a segue and talk about art now. So you make various references to, to artwork throughout your story. Um, mm -hmm. And I know that the story intervenes in the period of history you're researching for your PhD. The Zhejiang Academy of Fine Arts 1985 graduation show controversy. So could you uh, offer a bit of background for our listeners who might not be familiar with the specifics of it? Yeah, of course. So... Hmm, where should I start? Well, I'll just start with the Zhejiang Academy of Fine Arts, which is now known as the China Academy of Arts. It was like the most major art academy in uh, southern China. And it was kind of like founded uh, along with some other, or like an iteration of, of it was founded along with some other art academies at the turn of the 20th century, when, you know, in China, which was sort of late imperial transitioning into like a new era, a lot of different intellectuals and thinkers and like pol political people were all really interested in what it meant to be modern and what China needed to potentially do in order to become modern. And for a lot of people that involved like a kind of cultural and fine arts education that was inspired by like Western academies that they tried to import and found in China. So there's like a lot of really, really interesting history about that. So I guess I will say that like this idea of like what art is there, there's a really great quote which is like the uh, i guess i can paraphrase it which 
Preclinus uh, starts his book Art in China with, he basically says like there's no such thing as Chinese art, like that is an invention in, about, in and of itself, because like ideas of like obviously Chineseness, as we've talked about, but also ideas of like what is art, like what is fine art, really became kind of crystallized uh, within this period of like nation building and like ideas of various often contradictory ideas of modernity, which themselves were related to, a lot of people thought that modernity meant westernization, but like what does that mean, right? So history happens and like the People's Republic of China is founded in 1949 and the Chinese Communist Party had very specific ideas about what art that speaks to the masses and that can really be related relatable to the masses looks like and that is like best represented in this thing that we call the the Yan'an talks which is a sort of like lecture that Mao gives in 1942 about like what art should be like and he essentially says stuff like you know art should be art should serve the masses first and foremost and then art should like utilize some like you know indigenous motifs to appeal to the masses and like art should draw from the lives of the masses and be like ultimately relatable and like throughout the maoist era this idea you know like what is sort of like seen as like quote unquote pro propaganda art like fundamentally like the idea of like socialist realism is that art is politically contagious and emotionally contagious so art can should be able to create emotions in the viewer that will really make them passionate and will really rouse them and then they might be encouraged to align themselves with like political campaigns so and that can come in a lot of different forms and like people were throughout like the 50s and the 60s even within this like very institutionalized like high communist setting like there was a lot of debate over what that should look like so there are two there's a good book by julia f andrews about this but there were two main strands of like should art look like soviet realism or should art be like chinese whatever that means and what does like a chinese inspired art look like ultimately the sort of socialist realism motif kind of won out a bit more and throughout the Cultural Revolution, which is from 1966 to 1976, you can kind of see that come to the forefront. Like, this is where you get the stereotypical, like, socialist imagery from China of, like, you know, everyone, like, waving their little red books at Mao and, like, everyone's smiling. During that period, Mao's wife, um, Jiang Qin, kind of directs the cultural production and she has this slogan, which is that art, uh, because she's a theater actress, art should be liang, so red bright and shiny so essentially she kind of encourages these depictions of emotions that are just really happy and really optimistic and as long as the art is really happy and exciting and like galvanizing then everyone will be happy excited and galvanized for the cultural revolution and for like all of this change so in 1976 Mao dies and that kind of signals like the end of what we would call like socialism in China for the end of the nine of the 70s various like other sort of leadership forces come in and then eventually you kind of have this declaration of reform and opening up which is that like okay china has to china's going to institute market reforms china's going to open up its market and its borders to the west and we're now going to go into this like much more like market-based and like uh, capitalist era so what people generally call like the post-socialist era of china sort of starts around the around 1979 and goes on throughout the 80s and the 90s and one of the things that really characterizes art in this time is that Everyone says that communism is still around, like what you would call like socialism with Chinese characteristics. So everyone's sort of leadership is really insisting that like ideologically, we're all still the same. We're all still serving the revolution and serving socialism. But around you materially, like things are changing. Consumerism is happening and like like 
guaranteed employment from the state is no longer a thing. And so like this figure of the artist is starting to rise. Like what is a professional artist? What does that mean? What is the kind of art that we should be making? So the 1985 Zafa, Young Academy of Fine Arts controversy is to me, like it's actually like, I feel like I'm the only person in the world that like really cares about it. <laughs> I tried to Google it to try yeah. to like establish some context. I was like, not, yeah. not a lot out there to to like kind of, you know, read about yeah. I got really I got really excited about it because this is a graduating class where like a couple of like uh, one of the art major artists that like I'm writing about for my PhD whose name is Zhang Peili he's currently a video artist he's super super famous uh at the time though he had just graduated from the oil painting department at the school and like his friends were in the class of 1985 he was class of 1984 and so like that was what led me to it and I just realized that like people like the girls were fighting they were <laughs> so upset and there's like all of these articles that we have about like people just being like deeply, deeply upset and invested in this controversy. Like there were, you know, whole like issues of like national art magazines dedicated to like transcribing what everyone had said. Essentially, like the main struggle, basic terms, what happened was that that year, a lot of the students, especially in the painting and the oil painting in the sculpture departments, created art that was much more about individual expression. Um, and that was... Uh, much more abstract and like non-figurative and they exhibited it and the conservative faculty at the school like the president of the school and stuff got really upset because they were like this is like basically you know degenerate western bourgeois art um because you know it's selfish it's only like about the students themselves and also like it doesn't even look like it, it doesn't look realistic and therefore it can't be relatable to the masses. So that was like the core of the controversy. And like thinking about, I, I really, I was really interested in like reading actually what was going on and the way that people were like arguing for or against this, because like they're, the, the teachers who had led like these students and like their like kind of like their supervisors were like, oh, students should be allowed to like paint what they want. Um, and it it took on a lot of different dimensions. Essentially, there was this idea that like these like Western influences and these like bourgeois influences are dirty and disgusting, and they're going to pollute society uh, because they um, are going to like put the wrong ideas into audience members' heads. Like they're not like promoting the the four modernizations, uh, which is like the program that China was undergoing at that time. Like they're not promoting consumerism they're not promoting what the country is trying to promote and they're not like inspiring patriotism so that was like the main argument but then like ultimately like i i know that i can like talk about this for like three hours <laughs> but i think this is someone who's me, in a phd i can tell yeah, yeah. <laughs> to me what is like super interesting about this is that there was one slogan that everyone was holding onto, which is it means um to dive deeply into life or to plunge deeply into life or to immerse yourself into life. Um, and so the um, conservative critics were like, oh, this is not realistic. This is not because this doesn't reflect like the lives of the masses and therefore it's not realism. And the like defenders were like, well, obviously it's realism because these students are painting like their own lives. They're painting their friends and yeah, like they're alienated and depressed and unhappy. And like that shouldn't be like you shouldn't forbid people from painting depression it, it relates back to this conversation about truthfulness doesn't it you know how, yeah. how that's represented yeah. in in art whether that's fiction or or uh, fine art or painting or whatever yeah exactly because like the core struggle is actually like what is real life and what is real and what counts as realist um so like yeah it's it's just like a super super interesting debate that's going on and it's also a debate over like 
the future of art education because uh, they were debating whether or not like the artists had like failed in teaching their students how to make art. So it's all a big debate about like what uh, art's role is in society. And essentially there's this idea that I think like the students in this period, they were still very committed to the fundamental claim that art can change the world and that art can change the way people feel and therefore go on to make society better in some way or change society. They just wanted to do it in a different way. They just wanted to make like avant-garde weird art that wasn't like immediately legible, but that could still change people on the inside as long as they were like ex exposed to like more critical and like more complex ideas. So anyway, going back to class of 1985, <laughs> like <laughs> I was thinking a lot about this period of time when sort of like everything was really coming to a head it's ultimately a period of transition and it's a period of deep confusion like no one knows what's going on and everyone is like really really anxious both about like this like state-led you know um directive in terms of like what should art look like like the state never really defined what art should look like so everyone else is scrambling to do it correctly mm -hmm. uh, but there's also like the legacy of the cultural revolution um so then like in all these debates they're like guys like let's not get violent you know no one's going to start persecuting the other person just because they have the wrong ideas about art but then at the same time like they're really really stressed out about like yeah about being correct again which i think is very interesting because as a person i'm really like one of my like problems is that I'm obsessed with the idea that there's always a correct way <laughs> to be. And there's always like a way that you're supposed to be. So I, as I was reading all this, I also came across a really interesting quote from one of the artists that I like, I studied for my PhD, where he basically, he and his friends are basically just like joking around and they basically just start like talking shit about their female classmates from that time. And I was thinking about like women and like what is going on there. And then I was also thinking about like pollution and deviance and things that society thinks are like bad and need to be expelled lest they you know contaminate the rest of us and like deviant sexualities and how that is this uh i guess pollutant that kind of lurks within all of these like eugenic eugenically inflected discourses about like societal progress so that's what inspired me to write class of 1985 which is essentially just like set in that moment but with like weird lesbians who fantasize that they're snake sisters <laughs> and who are ultimately like they're still really committed to this idea of like making good art but like the question of what that is is like so confusing for everyone it's it's great it's kind of like it, it speaks to what is going to be our literary dilemma is that the, the kind of depth yeah. of the 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 history that you've gone into just to then write the story is is so i mean you literally could write a phd on it yeah. and our literary dilemma is literally how do you one of our uh, listeners has, has written in with this right. question yeah um, which is how do you find the time to edit the magazine and to mm -hmm. do your own writing and also to um you know do a phd you know We're alongside yeah. that it's it's like a, it's a monumental kind of body We're of work we're both in awe of you. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I have to ask Katie the same question because, Katie, you're always teaching and you're doing journalism. And I believe you're self-funded for your PhD, right? Uh, yes, yeah. I mean, teaching's yeah. finished now. I'm, I'm now... Okay london mag exclusive but <laughs> okay congrats because i mean like whenever i see what you're doing i'm just like that's like i could never do that like for, personally like teaching takes a lot out of me and i've had to stop because you don't get paid enough to ever uh, have it be worth it but i mean i don't know i think like i'm always just doing something and it definitely like there are times that uh where like one certain thing that i'm working on will like take up like most of my time and then i can ignore it for like a week ultimately the way i make it happen is that i don't really do my phd uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> I think just kind of on a final note, talking about just the process of submission briefly and mm -hmm. also sort of 
future prospects with your your creative work yeah thank you well submission i think is it's like such an interesting ecosystem in terms of these like online literary magazines and i think that there's really been a huge explosion of online literary magazines in the past few years which is quite exciting but I think also makes it like a lot harder to navigate. When I started writing, I have my good friend Kwanan Tan, who's also like a short story writer, a poet and a novelist who has uh, her novel maybe coming out like three years from now. Uh, she like really kind of helped me navigate that and uh, said like, oh, these are some magazines that you want to be reading. And these are some magazines where you might want to be submitting. Um, and that's how I kind of uh, got into that as a writer myself but it can be a really alienating experience right because you're just like you might be using submittable you might be emailing people and then like three months later you get like you know maybe like a really impersonal rejection it can feel yeah. so so lonely and I think that ultimately like what's so important is having like actual friends that you know who are writers and I remember like someone once said like oh but what if I don't know like what if none of my friends are writers and I'm like I actually think they probably are it's just that you might not have talked about it like everyone is like a lot of people are like secretly working on something and would be really excited to share that and to like get feedback and like to to like kind of I guess be on like a literary journey with people that they already know and trust. So I think that that's really important and good. And in terms of submitting, like I think the good thing about having been an editor first is that I don't take my creative writing personally that much, like even when I'm being really vulnerable. And I think like going back to journalism, like that's another thing. It's like fiction is so navel-gazy like it's ultimately just about you and just about the craft right you're just there trying to tinker like I have this problem where I'm like every single sentence has to be doing work for the story and I think that's a good uh attitude to have as an editor because that's your job but then as a writer it can make me a huge perfectionist and I really I understand that like even when I'm writing about like political themes that I care about for example my novel is about is about unions I know that ultimately like what I care about a little bit more is getting the craft right and that's like a fundamental issue that like all artists will have it's like balancing aesthetics which are like so important like aesthetics can never really be uh, obviated with like all the other things that you kind of want uh, your audience to receive. I would say in terms of submissions, like starting small and like not taking things personally, because ultimately like it's all just like one big, I don't know, like everyone is just like doing this, like often for no money, just for their own passion. But if you do want money, uh, you can submit to the London Magazine's short story prize, yes. which, yeah. uh, which uh, uh -huh. enter our short story prize, definitely, because there are, yeah, cash, there no, are cash prizes. There, there are cash prizes, yeah, I have exactly. seen that. That's yeah, very, yeah. very exciting. When's the deadline? Uh, 25th of July. So oh, exciting. So uh, depending on when you're listening to this, you might still have a lot of time. Exactly. Uh, and, then, yeah. and then in terms so, of your own kind of future mm -hmm. writing, uh, what have you got mm -hmm. on the kind of in the pipeline at the moment, what are you working on? Um, yeah. Is there a novel that's going to come out in 10 years? Because I do know the, the, the publishing industry, the gears turn so slowly. It's, uh, yeah. it's depressing sometimes. I think 10 years is actually optimistic. Because, <laughs> um, I... I have not been writing my novel. <laughs> I think the last time I worked on it was like two months ago. I literally, literally haven't even opened the Word document um, in the meantime. <laughs> but yeah, I am like technically, quote, writing, quote, a novel. And it's hopefully going to be about unions and about lesbianism and about oh there's going to be self-cessed in there so that's exciting but that's like really far into the future and I would say that like in the meantime I'm just like trying to like work on some short stories and get those out there and like figure out I, I definitely feel that I'm like for sure maturing very very slowly maturing as a writer like I already look back on the stuff that I wrote in 2020 and I'm like okay yeah like I've really I'm starting to write things that are a little bit longer so that's quite exciting and I'm taking my time a lot more so that's very cool and I think like always remembering that um 
when you send something out to an editor like it is no longer part of you and it, it like you've sort of launched this like big machine of the universe and it's really just about the words that are on the page like I think that's like really reassuring actually to think about well we'd like to finish the podcast just by asking our guests mm-hmm. what the last great thing they read or saw or watched feel free to pick your kind of art form in which way you want to answer mm-hmm. this but yeah what was the last great thing that you consumed that is vaguely artistic what have you enjoyed right. recently Thank you. God, I've been really getting into uh, album Around the Fur by Deftones. So I would say that that is something that I'm every time I listen to it again, I like forgot. Like, I feel like I haven't listened to it enough where like I know the, the the music unprompted. So I always like forget what it sounds like. And then I turn it on. I'm like, wow. That's, that's, great that's such a beautiful stage you're at where you're at with like an album where you're kind yeah. of listening to it and you're you're not you don't know it all yet and you're discovering new yeah. stuff every every time you listen. That's like the the golden. You just got to try and prolong it, you know, just kind of ration out yeah. the amount of times you listen to it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like I don't, I don't want to overdo it. Also, shout out to the lead singer of Deftones, who is actually Sino Diasporic. So that's cool. There we go. It's all come full circle. Actually, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you, Katie and Jamie, for your time.